0: All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. That's what we're just saying about. You might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death this morning. It might feel like, I wanna tell you something, He is with you. He's with you. Our circumstances seem to be true to us, and the pain is real, and um, it can be overwhelming. But brothers and sisters, God's word is even more true than our circumstances. There might be nothing outwardly that makes you feel like God is with you. That does not mean that he isn't. His word is true. Amen? Amen. That's why we walk by faith. Thanks for that song this morning, guys. Lord, we love you. Uh, We are here to meet with you and we come with confidence this morning Because of what we just sang about that. You are always faithful. Always. Heavenly Father, I want to confess this morning that there have been times in my life, um, and not like way long ago, but like recently, and even as a pastor, that I have felt overwhelmed and I have felt like you were not with me. But... Never once, never once have you failed me, ever. And we thank you for that this morning. We thank you that our hope is sure. It is steadfast. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, your word says. So thank you for all these promises and so many more. Lord, you are so good. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. Uh, most of you know, some of you might not though, that uh, myself and my oldest son Ephraim and Matt Beachy and Taylor Eaton, two of the interns, were down in uh, Columbia or Colombia. They, get, they don't like when you say Colombia. You've got to say Colombia. Um, Colombia, uh, South America. Uh, this last week we got back Wednesday evening, um, and so we're taking a break from Judges this morning, uh, although we all are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to share briefly just a little bit about the trip, uh, and then I want to get into uh, this word in 2 Samuel, which is something that I've just been coming back to over and over and over again over the last uh, couple months. Uh, it, was, it was a great trip. Um, medellin uh, colombia is a beautiful city um i i don't know we had a great time down there this this past week i did not know till we got down there that the city is uh, q said they call it the city of eternal spring Uh, we walked into our airbnb and the windows were open and it's just like 65 to 75 all year round no humidity there were no air conditioners anywhere i didn't see any heaters anywhere and get this there are no bugs I mean, there were, there were a few. Like Hugo, because the, the windows were open and one of the first things Taylor and Matt had, they're like, what about the bugs? Should we, and he goes, ah, there are no bugs here. And then throughout the week, we tried to prove him wrong and we saw like two, we saw like two bugs. Um, but just a beautiful place, literally surrounded by the Andes Mountains. Um, it is a very compact city. If you picture, for those of you that are familiar with the city of Columbus, if you picture 270, which is the outer belt that runs around Columbus, uh, take that size of the outer belt cut it in half, and then put 4.7 million people in it. That's Medellin, surrounded by um, the Andes Mountains. And so you, everything is just built up. You just keep going up um, uh, with their building, and, and uh, people kind of live on top of each other. It's a lot more compact uh, than what we're used to, but it is a beautiful, beautiful place with beautiful people um, and a beautiful church that God uh, is at work in. I just want to share a couple things about it real quick so you can put some some faces with some names. Uh, Zoe, can you... Uh, I got a couple pictures here. Uh, this one, we... Uh, this was this was on a wall uh, <laughs> near a mall somewhere. We, they put those pictures there on the wall so that you can take silly pictures like this, and we wanted to embrace international relations and do our best to pave that, and so... Uh, anyway, you can, I'm just—you can go on to the next one. There's Zoe. A um, couple things that we did. Okay, this is on Sunday morning. This is Q and Anna's local church. Uh, Q and Anna. For those of you who don't know, this is—well, maybe this thing's. Seems... I think my laser pointer just went down. But that's Q. Um, he is, his parents are from Korea, and they were, he grew up as a missionary kid. They were sent out from the Korean church to Peru. Uh, so Q is very well fitted for a Hispanic culture. He, he speaks Spanish very fluently. This was the church where we uh, were at on Sunday morning. Uh, you can go to the next picture. Zoe, um, in the middle here, my laser pointer is given out there, so you're just going to see flashes. That is Pastor uh, Jonathan. He is the pastor at the local church there uh, in Medellin. Uh, This is his wife, uh, Jeanette. This is uh, two of their daughters. And then this is Anna, uh, Q's wife. And then this is their two daughters, uh, Lucia and and, uh, Noelia. Um, But we had a a great time there on Sunday morning, Um, had an opportunity to preach the word, I think Appreciate you guys praying for me with the translation. I was able to talk in much shorter, not run-on sentences like I usually do, uh, and so it worked out pretty well, but mainly because Q is a really, really good uh, translator, uh, and he's very fluent in both languages. Um, you can go back there. There you, there you go. This was So we got there Wednesday. On Thursday, we spent about five hours with a group of um, pastoral uh, interns, uh, there is a network of churches in Colombia, that, and you'll see this guy later, this is just the back of his head right here, his name is Pastor Diego, he's been planting churches in Medellin and in the surrounding area for the last 35 years or so, a wonderful man of God, real pleasure to get to know him, um, and these are, uh, with, through with the churches that he's planted over the years, uh, there's now several different churches, and these are some interns, um, from the churches and so we spent about five hours with them on Thursday, uh, mainly talking about discipleship. Um, we learned a lot from them. Uh, one of the reasons Q had, come, uh, had asked us to come down and talk about these things was he wanted us just to talk about uh, the discipleship pathway that we have here at the church and also the E2 course which we have and kind of how we've implemented some of those things because that kind of conversation is much of what uh, they're working through in their network right now. Um, here's some more pictures with that same group. Um, on Thursday, uh, it was just a great, great time of fellowship. Again, I would say so, some of them um, they they speak English a lot better than we speak Spanish, so we were able to communicate a little bit. But again, Q was there the whole time and was helping us work through it. This is a picture with a group of all the, the lead teaching pastors of uh, not all the churches in the network, but several of the churches. Um, Within the network down in Medellin, we spent five hours with them on Friday morning uh, and then then had had lunch together, Uh, again, just talking about discipleship and church planting uh, and small groups. One of the things that is really, um, it's not a new concept, but it's new for them in terms of applying it within the church network down there. Uh, Is really doing functional small groups well. So, if you guys know the history of Colombia, not just Colombia, but especially Medellin, Medellin was kind of—it was the headquarters of uh, kind of the famous drug lord Pablo Escobar, who wreaked a ton of havoc uh, back in the 80s and especially the 90s. Um, Medellin, back in the 90s, was rated several years in a row the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, This last year. It was a city in Mexico that was rated the most dangerous city in the world, and the way that they rate that is they rate it by deaths or murders per 100,000 people. And I think this past year, uh, it was a city in, in Mexico, and it was hundred and some deaths per 100,000 people. So just to give you some sort of a, um, uh, a scale, I guess, is back in the 90s, Medellin was the most dangerous city in the world, and its death rate was 374, I think deaths per 100,000. So it was like two to three times more dangerous than the most dangerous city in the world uh, back then. Um, but, they, but they have come a very long way. Um, this is a group of, again, several of them there, uh, and we got to talk with them uh, about discipleship, and again, specifically small church um, and small groups. And where I was going with that was that the reason small groups are a big deal is because, because of the, the history of violence that's been in much of their past uh, several decades ago is nobody trusts anyone. So back in that day, you would never just have somebody else just, that you didn't know that well just invite them over to your house because you didn't know kind of which crew they were rolling with um, and there was just, just violence uh, pretty much all the time. It became almost a daily occurrence. And so um, trust, relational trust, and really doing small groups well is a lot of what we talked about. Here's Pastor Diego, who I pointed out the back of his head earlier. Um, Just a wonderful, godly man. Look forward to continuing a relationship with him. Uh, He's just been faithfully laboring away in the city for the past 35 years or so. This is actually his church um, uh, in Medellin. It's, It's just in like rows of buildings and they've kind of carved out some space there's you can't see the rest of the sanctuary but that's the sanctuary low ceilings and it's kind of some a lot of poles and stuff holding everything up because again every building there you just kind of build upwards but it was just a wonderful 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 time together um uh, I want to thank Ephraim for going along. He did a good job of just sitting there and listening to all of us talk about, about church stuff uh, for a long time. And I want to thank Taylor and Matt as well, too. They really added to the conversation, and um, it was just awesome to have them along. And uh, we all learned a lot from each other, so it was a really good, it was a really good time. And I thank you guys uh, for praying for us as we went and to continue to pray for Q and Anna. And for some of those faces that you saw, especially Pastor Diego, as he helps lead uh, that church network down there. Just a few takeaways from the trip, if I can, real quickly. Number one, Christ's bride is really big and really beautiful. Christ's bride is really big and really beautiful. And the body of Christ, the thing that um, is good about getting out and why, uh, again, it's, it's not for everybody. It's not that everybody has to, but one of the things we're passionate about here at Mercy Hill is being able to send people on short-term trips, we think it's a great um, part of the discipleship process. I think we've got like 20-some people uh, plan on going to Guatemala in um, our first part of the year, end of January, beginning of February. But when you get out and you see the Church of Jesus Christ in other countries, you become overwhelmed by the diversity uh, and just how how big and beautiful the body of Christ is, and yet uh, as you see god 's people, you understand that um, our God, our Savior, is even bigger he 's the one who purchased us purchased us with his blood and made us and made us a people. A second takeaway from the trip, just quickly uh, is that nothing creates unity like shared theology. Um, these brothers it was very, very interesting uh, we didn 't fully know this till we got down there, but uh, i I would say that we align with them both theologically, uh, what we believe about what the scripture teaches, but also philosophically. In other words, how, how to do discipleship, how to do church. We probably align with them more than anybody else that I know of, um, even in, even in this, in this area. And so just the word of God, just even though it was the first time we met them, there was such a unity there. And you could almost just sense it. It was almost like tangible in some ways. Not to over-spiritualize it, but it, but it really was. Um, and even though the, uh, there was a language barrier at times, um, the truth of the Word of God is what, is what holds us together. Uh, and then the last thing was just that on Sunday morning, um, I was just reminded a little bit of what heaven's going to be like. How many of you have ever been on a missions trip and you've sang with another group of people in another language? Anybody? And man, even though you don't know the words, exactly what they're saying, you're worshiping, are you not? And it's a beautiful thing to hear God's people sing and to think that someday there's going to be a massive throng of us around his throne from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation singing together the praises of God. And that's that's what we were made to do. And it's why it's important that I actually, early Friday morning I was awake and uh, I was reading a manuscript of a sermon that John Piper recently preached at a, it's called the Sing Conference, Keith and Kristen Getty put it on every year, and I think it was this last week or something, but one of his final points in there uh, that just rung true, especially because of just coming from this trip and getting to sing with these brothers and sisters in another language, um, was he, he says that when we gather for corporate worship, it's a dress rehearsal for heaven. Isn't that beautiful? And again, but it doesn't have to be in another country. When we gather here, like what we just did, it's a dress rehearsal for heaven. Is that we, yeah, we may speak the same languages, although, you know, some speak Dutch, some some don't. We got Jonas who speaks Portuguese, you know, uh, from Mozambique. So we've got some diversity, but still just the diversity of just who God has made us to be when we gather together to sing. It's a dress rehearsal for heaven. Amen? 2 Samuel chapter 12. So that was, that was part one, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, doesn't tie in a whole lot. I'll try to a little bit. This is something that, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that I've been wanting to share for a while. I've just kind of been waiting for the right time. It's more something that the Lord has been ministering to my own heart from his word about uh, over the last several months. It was back in August, I believe. There was a, there was a week where I wasn't preaching, and so I had a little bit more time just to read outside of what I'm usually studying for uh, for teaching different things. And I was just kind of meandering through Second Samuel chapter 12. And I want to draw your attention to verses 24 and 25. And again, these these verses and this idea that we're going to talk about today, this has just been stuck in me for the last couple months, and it continues to. To speak to my heart, um, verse twenty-four says, "Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him." It's, it's literally and Yahweh loved him. Verse twenty-five, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The name Solomon, what David originally named him was means peace, means peace. But the Lord loved him and the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to give him a different name. Jedidiah which literally just means loved by Yahweh. Loved by Yahweh. I want to talk a little bit about these verses this morning, but let's let me pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. Uh, it's a privilege to gather around it. Um, we do pray for the brothers and sisters down in Medellin this morning, Lord, as they too are gathering around your word right now. Pray that you would just break the bread of your word, the oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon it, both there and here. You'd give us hearts to receive it, to take it in, and that you'd change us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. A couple things about these verses, okay? need to kind of do some setup here. I want to talk a little bit about the context. I want to talk about the scope of Solomon's life. Um, And then I want to talk about an anomaly within these two verses that If we're familiar with the rest of Scripture, should kind of jump off the page at us. First of all, just the historical context. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we've been reading through the book of Judges. The book of Judges takes place uh, in a 300-year period right kind of before this period. So um, we've been in the first couple chapters of the book of Judges so far, and it's the book of Judges is going to span about this 300-year period, and one of the things we've touched on a couple times in the first couple chapters is actually a verse from the very, that's the very last verse in the book of Judges that sums up the whole book that says, in that time there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was fit in his own eyes. And there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was fit in his own eyes eyes but then right after that period of the judges you now have this period of the kings so there was no king in israel now here come the kings the first one was saul saul was somebody that was anointed by god but saul's heart was never fully there and he very quickly goes astray and tries to do things in his own strength and in his own power and in his own worldly ways and so god removes the kingdom from him and then god raises up david David, a man after God's own heart. He's, and you guys know the story, David comes on the scene, uh, you know, becomes very popular by killing Goliath when everybody else was afraid. Um, him and Saul were kind of at odds then for a while. Uh, David isn't trying to usurp the throne, and yet God has called him to lead. He's anointed him as king, even as a young man. And so Saul becomes jealous of this, literally throws a spear at him several times, tries to take him out. Eventually, um, God puts Saul aside. David does actually take the throne. Uh, David is a man of, of war. He has a lot of blood on his hands. He has this great desire in his heart to build this temple to God where God's presence could dwell. But God specifically tells him that he can't do it because he has too much blood on, on his hands. And then, of course, you know the, the story of, of David and Bathsheba. That even though David was a man after God's own heart, he committed grave, 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 grave sin. And he took a woman that was someone else's wife, and, uh, and he, he slept with her, um, and then he had her husband killed, Uriah. He kind of like put a hit out on him, basically. Um, and then he is living in sin for, I, I believe the timeline is somewhere about between like six to 12 months. He's just, he's done all this, and nobody really knows about it, but God knows. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, you have God sending the prophet Nathan to him. You guys know this story. It's the beginning of 2nd Samuel chapter 12. I'll read it very quickly. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb of which he bought and he brought it and he grew it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his two uh, one of his own flock." Or heard to prepare for the guest who had come to him but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him then david's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to nathan as the lord lives this man that has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity in verse 7 classic line nathan looks at david and he says to him you are the man Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And so Nathan comes to David with this harsh word of rebuke for the sin that he had done. David does repent. He does turn to the Lord. The Lord forgives him. Uh, and the Lord restores him. However, the sword, as part of the judgment, the sword, um, strife, uh, remember Solomon's name is peace. The opposite of peace, turmoil, is going to mark David's life and his own household till the end of his days because of his sin. Bathsheba was already pregnant from the affair that she had had with David. They lose that child, but then he takes Bathsheba as his wife, and in verses 24 and 25 that I just read, she again conceives, and she has a son, and they call him Solomon. And again, his name means peace. And names in the Bible are a pretty big deal. We'll talk more about this, but um, I think David, it's interesting just to meditate upon and think about why, although we might not know for sure, but why David chose to name him Solomon or peace. I think part of it had to do that David was a man of war and had always known war. He did have a lot of blood on his hands, and I think he wanted nothing more than some peace in his life, and he saw that in his son. I think part of it, too, was that even though uh, as part of the judgment when God sent Nathan to rebuke him for his sin, uh, and he tells him that the sword is never going to depart from his house, I think that once he confessed it, even though that conflict was always going to be around him in some way, I do think there was a peace that he had. He knew that um, God had forgiven him, so that might be part of it. Um, but I think he just, he longed for this peace in some way, and even though he tasted it in some measure, and so he names his son Solomon, or peace. I want to talk a little bit about Solomon's life and his, and his, and his work. Um, as you fast forward through the next couple chapters of this book, there's not much about Solomon. Uh, you have to go into the next book of First Kings to find out about his life. Um, again, Saul, then David, then Solomon comes on the scene. Uh, Solomon's, Solomon lived true to his earthly name. His reign was one, for the most part, very much of peace and prosperity. Uh, he was able to do what his father was not able to do. He built a temple. Uh, it was a, one of the most glorious physical things that had ever been built. Um, he brought cedars from Lebanon and coated things in gold. It was, it was one of the wonders of the world back in that day, for sure. Um, and the Lord's glory shows up. The Lord receives kind of this offering of this building that, he'd, that he had made for him. And you can read about it. And again, I'm, I know I'm going over this very quickly. We don't, we don't have time for all of it. But... Um, but the glory of God comes down with fire when he dedicates the temple to him, and God's presence uh, dwells there. Um, you guys know the story of Solomon, that when he was, was young, he, the Lord came to him in a dream and said, ask of me whatever you want. And Solomon, you know, he, he had this one opportunity, he could have asked for riches, he could have asked for unbelievable power, he could have asked to, I don't know, that his, his name and his reign would have, could go on uh, forever, but he asks for wisdom, he asks for wisdom. And the Lord is pleased with this. And so because he asked for wisdom to be able to rule God's people well, uh, the Lord uh, also grants him great wealth beyond what any king had seen before or, or since. Uh, and the different rulers from all over the world, there's sort of the queen of Sheba that heard about Solomon's wisdom, heard about his wealth, and comes and travels just to, just to hear him speak and just to see all the wealth and all the beauty of what he had built. Solomon writes three books of the Bible the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, as it's sometimes called, he wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs and the majority of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, many people think, and I, I kind of tend to agree, is that the Song of Solomon is uh, quite a detailed book actually about the, the physical intimacy and relationship between, uh, between a man and a woman, uh, between these lovers, but throughout history, it's also been used as a metaphor Uh, to speak of Christ's love for the church because we are his bride and Christ, of course, is the groom and we will be together with him someday. Many people think that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon when he was young and then he wrote Proverbs maybe sometime in midlife and then almost certainly he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes near the end of his life. Okay, And Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. Anybody read Ecclesiastes? You're like is this guy depressed or what's going on? Um, there's these phrases that are repeated again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, but uh, the most uh, frequent one, which I believe is, uh, appears at least 27 times, and I think maybe even a little bit more than that, he just says vanity upon vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. And, and what Ecclesiastes is, is it's, it's, it's kind of a journal of Solomon's um, escapades and all, all that he did, with all the wisdom that he had, with all the wealth that he had, with all the the peace that was happening. He didn't have to go off and and fight war, so he was able to to build, to be proactive, to make things beautiful. And he does all this different stuff. He takes to himself every type of pleasure that he possibly can, not in just some sort of a a, a blatant kind of drunken way, but he's pursuing pleasure. And he has all the resources in the world to pursue this pleasure. And yet the thing that he comes back to again and again and again is that it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. We are talking about the richest, wisest man that ever lived. And he says, I tried to seek as much pleasure as I possibly can from everything that I had. And he had way more than you and I ever will. And in the end, he goes, it's it's a chasing after the wind. It's a chasing after the wind. And I mention all that because the thing that has just been speaking to my heart, again, as we come back to those verses in 2 Samuel 12, is, that, is this name that God sends the prophet Nathan to David to say that he, he wants Solomon, he's like, there's nothing wrong that David and Bathsheba named him Solomon Peace, and that's good, and that, 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 that's fine. They didn't do anything wrong there. But the Lord said, I love this child. I love him. And he goes, And I want you to call him Jedidiah, which means loved by Yahweh, loved by the Lord. And yet, the great, and this is where I said there was an anomaly in this text. The great anomaly in this text, this thing, an anomaly, like something that just, wait, that doesn't make sense. Here's what doesn't make sense. Nowhere, other than verse 25 of chapter 12, is Solomon ever called Jedidiah. Nowhere. Now, as you study names throughout the scripture, um, this is an anomaly. It's, it's, it's different I mean um, God calls a man Abram which means exalted father and he called and then he renames him Abraham which means father of a multitude and he's called Abraham later on there's Jacob who means deceiver or supplanter God changes his name after he wrestles with God to Israel which means one who strives with God or one who has strength with God and they call him that. Um, he doesn't receive another name, but when John the Baptist comes on the scene, you remember God shows up uh, to, his, to his father and tells him that he wants him to be named John. The name John means uh, Yahweh or God has graced. And John's assignment was to proclaim that this grace was coming. Even the name Jesus, when the angel shows up to Mary, she says, you, you, you shall, the, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, you will conceive and have a child, you will call his name Jesus. And the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Why? Because that name, again, the point here is that names point to kind of the nature of the assignment that God has for us. And they're usually called that. And my point is simply this, if you're still with me. <laughs> the thing that's just been, I've just been meditating upon just my own life over the last couple of months. Is that I wonder... I wonder that even though Solomon, with all that he had, all the wisdom, all the wealth, all the women, I mean, 700 wives, 300 concubines, I mean, just everything that he had, um, his heart was still not satisfied. And I think it wasn't satisfied because the only thing that will satisfy the human heart is the love of God. It's the love of God. That's what Jedidiah means. It means Yahweh loves you. And again, don't, don't miss it. God sent the prophet Nathan to David to rebuke him. He says, you are the man. This is true. And David is cut to the heart. God, God sends the prophet Nathan to David, and says, Jedediah. Yet, as far as we know in the Scriptures, he's never called that. And again, I, I don't, well, we have to be careful, I want to point this out, I want to be clear, we have to be careful about making massive points about something that isn't in the Scriptures, as opposed to the things that are clearly taught. But again, this is just more of a devotional thought, and it's been something that's just, that I keep coming back to again and again in my own life, um, is because I, even though Solomon's name meant peace and he ruled in peace and he brought peace about, yet still his heart wandered and his heart clearly was not satisfied. And at the end of his life, um, again, his life is a weird juxtaposition because of all that he had, and yet at the end of his life you read that his heart went astray after other gods. And my main point this morning, brothers and sisters, is that only the love of God will satisfy your heart. Only the love of God. We're all like Solomon. We're not as well resourced. We don't have as much power and wealth and authority at our fingertips. But our hearts are looking for something. Our hearts are looking for something that will satisfy us. And man, do we look? Amen. Let me, t- I mean, and it can, yes, sure, it's 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 money, it's power, it's sex, it's bigger cars, it's bigger homes, it's it's newer ones, it's shinier ones, it's the iPhone 25 or whatever we're on by now. You know, whatever. But we look and we long when the love of God is offered to us see the good news of the gospel and that again Jesus came if i can just jump jump ahead here and hang with me i know we're covering like the entire bible here this morning but 1000 years after solomon comes there's going to be another child born jesus his name means yahweh is salvation if you remember the story when jesus begins his public ministry before he ever does anything he's baptized And God shows up at his baptism, the heavens are torn open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and a voice comes from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If I had to just kind of sum that up in layman's terms, the heavens are ripped open and God speaks and he says, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm glad that you're my son. You belong to me. And immediately after that, Jesus goes into the wilderness and and he's tempted by the the devil for 40 days. And you you know, one of the temptations that the devil brings to him is he takes him up on a high mountain and he shows him all the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, all that Solomon had and plus some more. And he goes, this I will give to you. It can all be yours. But this king knew that the only thing that would satisfy him is the love of God. And he didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to earn it. I mean, again, I know the Trinity thing is going on here, and that's, you know, he is God. He is God. Yet the Father said to him, I loved you. And he allowed that to satisfy his heart. And he lived his entire life abiding in the love of the Father. As fully God, and yet also fully man. The Bible says tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because he abided in the Father's love. He knew that he was loved by God. And at the end of his life, one of the last things that Jesus says, and again, for for those of you that call Marseille home, this will be a review from this past spring in the Upper Room Discourse, but especially John chapter 15, where he's talking about the vine and the branches and abiding in him. Just listen to this one verse. Just this one verse should blow our minds, and it should be enough to satisfy our souls forever. John 15, 9. Jesus says to his disciples, listen, as the Father has loved me. How did the Father love Jesus? Perfectly. Jesus was sinless. And I, he, he was God. He's Again, the Trinity thing is going on. He's perfectly one with God, and yet they're separate. Before Jesus does any miracles, before he does any teaching, any public ministry, he just the Father says, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm glad that you're my son. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Is that not amazing? Is that not amazing? My point being, if you'll let me just use this imagery, brothers and sisters, we are all in Christ. We are all named Jedediah. We are all beloved by Yahweh. And yet, just like Solomon, we live, it seems, according to a different name. We live according to the name maybe of our earthly father, even something that might be good, like peace. But it is not enough to satisfy our hearts. And again, I know this is really, really simple this morning, but um, in all of our theological musings and big theological words that are important and we need to know them and they help us understand who God is and who we are and they help us how to live and words like omnipotent, omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience and the hypostatic union and the trinity and you know the three in one and all these different things. Do not miss that there is a heavenly Father who loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And he didn't just send a prophet, Nathan, to tell you this. He sent his only son. And Jesus says, no greater love has any man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends, and that's exactly what he did for us. Not only in John 15, but listen to John 17, verses 22 and 23. Jesus is praying now, right before he's going to be arrested. And near the end of his prayer, in the hearing of his disciples, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, so that the world may know, listen, that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me, our heavenly Father loves us just like He loved Jesus. The love of God—I'm afraid—and I and I pray that the love of God for many, many, many people—it's just a word. Again, I've talked about this a ton. It's hard not to because love is all over the Bible. And it's hard to talk about love without running to our context and the way that we misuse it because we love that pizza and we love our wife and we love that sports team and we love our kids. But to have the Father say that he loves us in this way should absolutely change our life. And and it's something that he wants to make a reality in our lives by his very presence. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been, listen, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what you brought in here this morning. Um, in terms of sin. But another thing, and again, I'm just kind of sharing what the Lord's been doing in my life over the last couple months. Another theme along with this uh, idea of God's love for us and, and how it's important that we understand that it's part of our identity, um, or how his love should, should shape our identity, I guess I should say, is, is this idea of shame. is another thing that I've just been learning a lot about recently this idea of shame guilt guilt is the idea that we have done something wrong but shame runs even deeper guilt says we've done something wrong but shame says there's something wrong with us and on one level that's true because we are sinners that's what's wrong with us but Christ's love came to take away this shame I, if I can just shoot really straight with you this morning, and again, I know we don't all know all of each other's stories and what's going on in each other's lives, but I almost guarantee you, in fact, I, I will say, I, I will guarantee you, I'll arm wrestle you on this one, is that there are areas in each and every single one of our lives here this morning where we are Hiding. Hiding. There are things that you and I are ashamed of. We're afraid that if anyone sees, they will reject us. They will turn us away. Because if they only knew how bad I really was, not just what I did that was bad, but how bad I really, I really am. And Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that the love of Christ is greater than your shame. The love of Christ is greater than whatever you've done. The love of Christ is more powerful than the sin that lives within you. The blood of Christ is the payment that paid for it all. And if we could just comprehend the love of Christ, our lives our lives would be changed. The love of Christ needs to become a part of our identity. This is why Paul prays, again you guys have heard these verses before, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul was praying this for Christians. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, in other words, you know it. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're rooted and grounded in love. You know his love in some measure. And yet Paul's praying this for Christians. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. In other words, Paul's praying this for everybody all Christians everywhere, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that doesn't even make sense, does it? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you, what? Because it's by the Spirit. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. don't miss this fact that going back to the life of Solomon that God sends Nathan the prophet to tell him that he loves him before he does anything really good or bad I mean he's born in his sin like everybody else but again we don't even know that Solomon ever heard this but David heard it again Solomon was just a little baby but he was never he was never told this, um, or so or so it seems. And another point I just want to make is that, guys, this is why it's so important that if we want the love of God to shape our identity and to have it actually change us, is that we have to speak it to each other all the time. <laughs> Again, you think about this, and if you're if you're buying what I'm kind of trying to sell to you here this morning, that I think Solomon should have been called regularly Jedediah, every time he'd have heard that, he'd have heard, I'm loved by Yahweh, I'm loved by Yahweh, I'm loved by Yahweh, I'm loved by Yahweh. And it's one thing that, especially if you grow up in church, we know that God loves us, and sometimes even knowing that God loves us and yet we don't feel loved, even that can cause a spiral of shame in our life, Right? Have you ever felt guilty or felt ashamed and then you felt more shameful because you feel shame because you know good Christians shouldn't be ashamed. Good Christians shouldn't feel guilty. Anybody? No? I do. Shame is a weird thing that'll take you down a weird rabbit hole real quick. But what we need in those moments when we feel that shame, when we feel that guilt, when we feel like we have to hide, is there's a power in another brother or sister coming up to us, not because we deserve it, not because we did something nice to them and so that they did something nice to us, but just out of sheer unmerited favor and grace, just like God shows us, coming up to us and saying, Nevin, you are loved by God. Elena, you are loved by God. Zach, you are loved by God. Katie, you are loved by God. TJ, you are loved by God. This must be the culture of our church, folks. It must be the culture of our church. It has to be more than just from a pulpit on Sunday mornings. It has to be more even than when we gather in small church, although it should be happening there. It has to be more than when we gather in the little discipleship groups of, of two or three. We must daily exhort one another to go forward after Christ and abide in his love. This is what the world so desperately needs but not just the world we need it. Amen. We need this. And every single one of us plays a role in making Mercy Hill Church a place where not just individually do we abide in the love of Christ, but the love of Christ abides in us together. That people can come in here. Folks, can I give you a news flash? The world is a mess. And guess what? It's been a mess since the garden. Since the serpent came in and they ate the fruit, the world has been broken. You only get to Genesis chapter 6, and God brings the flood. The world has always been a mess. Stop being shocked that the world is a mess. Stop being shocked that the Republican Party isn't the answer to all your questions. Okay, I'll leave that one alone. But can I get an amen? The answer is in the love of Christ. Who has the love of Christ? The people of God. Us. And maybe it doesn't make sense for me to be yelling when I'm trying to, to talk about the love of Christ. But do you, do you understand, guys? This is true of us. It was objectively true of Solomon's life that Yahweh loved him. He sent a prophet to him. It is objectively true of your life, no matter how you feel sitting right where you're at this morning, that God loves you. Your feelings be darned because your feelings have nothing to do with it. The word of God is true. Amen? Let me talk nicer now. You, you, are, you are loved. You are loved. And again, the anger inside of me, I, I'm, I'm mad at the devil. Anybody ever get mad at the devil? Oh. Again, I, I can easily get mad at myself too because I co-participate with him at times. But again, the word of God is truer than anything that I do or you do, and the word of God says that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. It's exactly what it says. Worship team, you can come up. We'll close. On Sunday morning down there, um, Q's wife, Anna, who's also fluent in Spanish but um, speaks English, they she helps lead worship, and they did us a favor, and they uh, threw in a couple songs and a couple verses in some English words. Uh, that was So we, me and Taylor and Ephraim and Matt, we kind of jumped in and really tried to carry that portion of the congregational singing. Um, but one of the songs that we sang, I'm not even sure on the title on this, but um, I think it's just called Jesus, Jesus, thank you. Uh, but it says, your blood has washed away our sins. Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, you guys know this song? Once your enemy, now I'm seated at your table jesus thank you anybody no okay it's a good song look it up sometime but then in spanish it just hit me because we would sing the same thing then in spanish sometimes and instead of jesus thank you when we say that in spanish i learned a little spanish while i was there it's gracias cristo and so we'd be kind of singing the same thing and then Gracias, Christo. Gracias, Christo. And I don't know. It just spoke to me in a fresh and new way that all over the world the thing that unites God's people is what Christ has done in bringing us and inviting us into his love. Amen into his love. Um, And the cry of God's people, not just throughout the world today, but throughout all of history, is, Jesus, thank you. Gracias, Cristo. We're in a thousand different languages thanking God for what he's done. Brothers and sisters, he sent his son to die in your place. Because he loved you. God so loved the world that he sent his son. What else do you want him to do? Even if he never did anything else for us, but he he will. I mean, he will. (laughs) He will see us the whole way through. He will see us through to the end. He will provide for us all that is needed. He will help us to endure. He will help us persevere. He wants to bring healing to our broken hearts but even if he never did anything else. Greater love has no man than this and that he lays down his life for his friends. He's already done enough for us to thank him for eternity. Let's abide in that love, and I pray that it would shape our identities, both individually and corporately, and that we would remind each other of it every day. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray for any hearts that are here this morning that are wandering. It might be all of our hearts in some measure. But if we have a heart like Solomon, Lord, that is trying as best we possibly can to find pleasure in something of this world, I pray that we would only, that we would run to the only source, which is the love of Christ. We thank you for making us your bride, your body, your family. We thank you for calling us to not just be a part of this local church in this locality in um, this time in history, but we thank you for uniting us with good brothers and sisters down in Medellin, Colombia as well, and in all other parts of the world, in Guatemala, Northern Africa, India, um, Kenya. Thank you for brothers and sisters that we're all bought with your blood and that your love unites us. So Lord, please help us to live in this. Please help us to abide in it. And please remove any shame represented here this morning because this is what you came to do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.